This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello, this is Joel Hilliker, Managing Editor of the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine. I'm here in our radio studio with a whole lot of excited people with smiles on their faces. I have seven guests with me. The crew of of staff and students who just returned to Edmond after spending the last three months in Jerusalem participating in an archaeological dig on the Ophel right next to the Temple Mount under the direction of Dr. Elat Mazar. We have Nicholas Irwin and Depika Azariah, two members of our editorial team. Hello. Hello. Hello, Mr. Hilliker. And we also have Herbert W. Armstrong College students, Arianne Olson, Justice Brown, George Haddad, Brianna Weeks, and Warren Reinch. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Good to see you. Good to be here. So welcome back to Oklahoma. We have uh, a lot to talk about. I don't know how we're going to squeeze it all into less than an hour. We're going to discuss what you found over there, what day-to-day life was like as full-time archaeologists and students, what it was like living in Jerusalem, lessons you learned, miracles that you witnessed. I'd like to start, though, by talking about the business of why you were over there, which was to do archaeology. What exactly do archaeologists do and why? We're going to learn the answers from another DIG volunteer who's returned to her place on our sister campus in Edstone, England, but who pre-recorded this report for us. Herbert W. Armstrong College senior Rachel Grellett. Archaeology, simply put, is the study of the material remains of a civilization. The goal of an archaeologist is simple to define, find significant remains and give them an accurate date. The execution of this endeavour can, however, be harder to achieve. To be able to give finds an accurate date, the stratigraphy of the site has to be established. Stratigraphy is the various layers formed over time, each relating to a specific period of occupation. Some sites have just one or two, such as Quebec Kiafa, a fortress used in King David's time alone, whereas others have many, such as Megiddo, which has 26 layers or stratum. The finds are given a date based on their context, which is the layer that they're found in. Archaeology in Israel really began its history as a discipline when Edwin Robinson conducted typographical observations of the Holy Land in 1838. Kathleen Kenyon in the 1950s and 60s developed the modern techniques still used today, though aided now by more technological advances. The Kenyon-Wheeler method splits the area of excavation into squares that are excavated, leaving a freestanding wall of earth between each, called a bulk. This creates a natural cross-section where layers can easily be identified, adding to the information gathered as the square areas are excavated. Dr. Alant Mazar has been a leader in the use of wet sifting to aid the accuracy of excavation and also raise the likelihood of finding more of the smaller finds, such as bullet. The most common artefact used to date layers is pottery because it is extremely common throughout all eras. It's virtually indestructible, has a low intrinsic value, which means it wouldn't be passed on as an heirloom piece and therefore can actually be used for dating, and also because the pottery designs changed over time usually at regular intervals of 30 to 50 years. Archaeologists will often specialise in a specific time period or geographic region 
and through experience learn to read the pottery they're finding and determine an accurate date for the layer they're excavating. Often archaeologists post-excavation will bring in specialists for certain periods outside their expertise when processing all the finds to make sure these preliminary readings are correct and to shore up any errors. Coins are another excellent way to date layers from roughly 300 BC onwards. Coins were only created in about 500 BC, but not widely used in the Middle East until the Hellenistic period. Archaeological excavation requires a lot of funding, so often the question is asked, why bother? Successful leaders in the last few centuries all attested to the benefits of learning history. Winston Churchill himself said, study history, study history. In history lies all the secrets of statecraft. Archaeology uncovers this history. It is limited, though, in some respects. Archaeology cannot tell the why of a material or a find's use. This is where historical documents become extremely important to archaeologists. Eyewitness accounts especially shed light on the motives behind events and occurrences. What was used as a weapon in one period could have been used for a completely different function in a later period. Dr. Alot Mazar is special in today's world of archaeology. She works with the tools of excavation in one hand and the Bible in the other. Many civilizations have had their artifacts interpreted based on the historical documents left behind. The Bible, however, has come under constant fire with most scholars refusing to see it as a valid historical document. Dr. Mazar uses it as just that, reading the small details buried within the larger story to determine where different features and remains should be. For example, her theory in the late 90s of where King David's palace would be located was based on the 2 Samuel 7 account of David going down from his palace into the Jebusite hold when the Philistines attacked. Knowing where the Jebusite hold was, she of course went uphill. This theory was later confirmed through excavation in the Jerusalem neighbourhood of Silwan in 2005. In recent years, Dr. Mazar has led excavations uncovering a wealth of biblically significant artefacts. These include Nehemiah's Wall, a Solomonic complex, and many bullae, such as ones of the princes from Jeremiah's time, the Judean king Hezekiah, and most recent, one believed to be of Isaiah the prophet himself. The importance of the field of archaeology as a whole is easy to see as we gain greater and greater insight into the history of mankind. Seeing the mistakes and the successes of centuries past, which helps us prepare and train for the future. But more than that, Dr. Mazar is leading the way in giving the biblical account credibility in scientific circles as each of the artifacts uncovered confirms more and more the accuracy and therefore the relevance of the Bible itself. Her work is literally bringing the Bible to life. You guys got quite an education in archaeology over there. What was it like? Maybe you could just talk about uh, some of the things that you found and what your reactions were to getting your hands on some of these uh, ancient relics. Yeah, Justice. We did find quite a few coins, as is up on the website with Dr. Mazar, and we had a coin specialist come down after we we took about 40 of them and got them analyzed at the lab. And he came down to the cave and he gave us a debriefing on, on what, we had, what we had found and it was the year two and year four revolt coins of the Jews. And it was kind of funny to hear him talk about how this wasn't really much of a currency. It was more of a, 
of a way of bragging for the Jews. They took the coins and they made it as a kind of in your face of the Romans. We're making our own things. We're making our own mm-hmm. money. And that's why it says freedom of Zion and, and uh, free, uh, freeing of Jerusalem. Just they had a kind of a bragging tone to them. And it was then later on, there was only one more uh, year five coin found in Masada. So just seeing how those coins relate to where they traveled, they, they uh, year one through four, they were having these coins made. Then they got destroyed in 70 AD. They went to Masada and they were still going to die. And they still made another coin as a, as showing the Romans that they're still revolting. So it was just kind of cool seeing the mindset of the Jews in the ground and, and having an expert come down there and share that with us. Yeah, you're, you're getting this uh, picture of this era in history that uh, you could read about that in a book. Uh, but to be in the cave where you're finding these things or in the location where you're actually picking up the coins, what is that like to uh, have your hands on that and to actually you know, bring that history to life that way? I think it was cool just being there. I think it made the destruction a lot more real to me because, like you said, we're touching material that hasn't been touched in 2,000 years, and we're at the spot where the the last stand in Jerusalem was perhaps and people hiding out in the cave during the rebellion and it was just now cool. when when did this take place you said uh, year two and year four um, are you're not talking about like year two A.D. year this is uh, year two and year four of a rebellion that took place over a period of years but what what years did that take place it was I think between sixty six and seventy A.D. so year two would be sixty seven I guess yeah and then. Year four would be 69, and then 70 was when Jerusalem was destroyed. Yeah. And so we didn't really know that the, the coins that we found were very significant. Well, I guess we knew that they would be significant for dating. But other than that, we just knew that we found coins because they're all covered in dirt and stuff. They have to be cleaned first. Yeah. And so the first time we found coins, we were all excited. But they didn't, we didn't know the significance of them until um, the coin specialist had had them cleaned and then he brought them back and said that they're from the destruction of Jerusalem which made the cave so much more significant because that's where like that's where it all happened I guess. Okay, so you were working in two different areas and one of them was this cave. Maybe someone could just talk about like you you actually learned quite a lot about a sequence of events that took place there and that that area that cave was actually used for successively different purposes over over time yeah um as we dug down to the bottom we were cutting out a section and as we got pretty close to the bottom within about a meter or two we ended up getting some hasmonian uh pottery shards and eventually we got a full layer of clean hasmonian material which meant that there weren't any uh herodian era pottery in it and that would be later than hasmonian so it's it's amazing everything that you're looking at and you're brushing away these layers of dirt you're you really need to be digging into the history books in order to put what you're seeing in context like rachel talked about the fact that the coin or whatever the pottery shard that doesn't tell you why it doesn't tell you what was happening uh so in order to make sense of whatever it is you're looking at you have to dig into the history yeah, and we would do that occasionally. Um, I know Chris Eames was always studying. He always had his nose in the books. Um, he would specifically try and read through Josephus quite a bit. And uh, he found this one instance that Josephus mentions the temple location. Uh, so this cave was obviously nearby. And it also mentioned the uh, 
uh, a cave, as I said. It had stone mining, which we seem to have also in the cave. We found a, a layer that was just small rock chips, and it seems like that could have been from a cutout that we found in the cave. So it seems like as they were cutting out there, some of those little chips they left there on the ground wherever they fell. And uh, we also found some instances of them then coming out and being, as I said, like right near the temple. So it was just really neat to try and go through and make sense of what you're going through as you're digging. Because sometimes it's really hard. You're looking at the little things and you just can't figure out. You're like, I have no idea what's going right. on in this because there's so many different periods of construction. Yeah. Well, how much did it change your view of history generally to to be seeing these things? Well, I thought it was really cool, not just the archaeology aspect of it, but just being in Jerusalem and seeing we worked right across from Mount of Olives and then the Kidron Valley was right in between and and then being there with the cave and and knowing about the 70 AD destruction and even knowing about when Jerusalem was destroyed the first time in 585 it it just made it a lot more real just to see the location of all these different things we'd walk by the Valley of Gehenna every day as well on the way to the dig and so uh, when you read things in the Bible about these places and about prophecies about the future of Jerusalem as well. It's just cool to actually have a visual of that in, in your head mm-hmm. now. And so it just makes it a lot more real. And it's just interesting seeing, going through the cave and uh, digging down and seeing the, the strata basically speaks for itself. As Dr. Mazar always says, let the stone speak. Well, that cave really did speak a lot, just seeing the different uses. At first, the, the top part of the cave we can see was used as probably a tomb of some sorts. And later on, it expands further north, northeast a little bit, and then was used for a cistern. We can see two layers of... Uh, of plaster that they would use to two different time periods as well. So just over time, you can see it being reused and reused. And then we go and see uh, burn layers and ash layers and how that is directly relating to the 70 AD destruction. Mm. And just letting that history come to life as you're digging through it layer by layer and clearing those layers that you see. So that was awesome. Just not making your own theory, letting letting that the stones in the ground speak for itself. I'm sure that we could probably do an entire hour on this next question, but what was it like working with Dr. Mazar, seeing her day-to-day going about her business? It was one of the most inspiring parts of being in Jerusalem. Yeah, the, the location is amazing and the history is amazing, but to see that woman dedicate her life to something that she believes and to just every day, nonstop, be there, support us, and just be so caring as well as so dedicated. It was just amazing to see someone with that much with that much like gusto for what she does. And it was just really inspiring because we, we try to have that with what we do and everything like that. And just to see someone have that and but remain like a mother to all of us. She always mm-hmm. was asking how we were, she was always making sure everything was safe. But at the same time she just she was like, okay, let's get digging. Let's do this. Let's smash rocks. Let's do this. It was just really awesome to see someone, not to mention all the work that she does behind the scenes in the lab and the, the writing up and the research and just all of that as well. She she just kind of like watches over all of us, but at the same time is thinking about a hundred different things behind the scenes as well. It's, right. It was just really inspiring to see someone have that much energy. Uh, yeah, she definitely had a lot of energy and enthusiasm, and that was just really contagious. And at the same time, she was always willing to uh, just to be a teacher and to mm. teach us and to talk to us about what we were 
what we were digging, what we were seeing. And then she also cared for our opinion. She'd ask us, because we were on, you know, we were on the ground, we were actually working, she'd ask us what we thought certain things might be, and then uh, she'd hear us out, and then she'd explain what she, you know, what she believed it would be. I mean, obviously she was letting, she had an open mind, she was letting the stone speak, and uh, it was just really nice to be, kind of feel like you're almost like in a classroom whenever she came around mm-hmm. with her, at, you know, just telling us uh, certain things, and that was quite an interesting uh, learning process for us, too. That is marvelous. Well, what was it like for these volunteers laboring at the dig site, full work days and maintaining a full load of college classes? We're going to hear now a report on a day in the life of a Herbert W. Armstrong College Jerusalem dig volunteer from Ariane Olson. Well, our day started out pretty early, uh, which was a hard adjustment at first, but after, I think, the first couple weeks, we all got pretty used to it, and it wasn't as big a deal anymore. Us girls would usually, I think everyone in the girls' apartment, we got up at 3.45 every morning, but I think that the guys got up earlier than that, between 3 and 3.30, and that was something that Brent just really emphasized to us at the beginning of the dig, before we even started, that the entire dig was going to be built on our morning routine and how well we did with our prayer and study and just getting that contact with God in first. So that's something he really emphasized. That's something that we all strove to do. And it's just really great having everyone keeping the same schedule and just working towards the same goals. So just having that positive peer pressure every morning just to get up and get going was really great. We would leave for the dig at 5.50 and we wind up walking in pairs or little groups to the dig. And when we got there, it was still dark the entire way um, to the dig, but the sun was just beginning to rise when we got there at 6.30. But as the weeks passed, the sun would rise early and earlier, which was really cool as we were walking to see the different stages each morning, um, especially when you first arrived at the dig and it was above the Mount of Olives. We started work at 6.30. There were two areas that we split into. The first area was upstairs, area D, and that was a Byzantine house that they were trying to uncover completely. And the area supervisor for that site was the Israeli workers who's worked with us on several digs in the past. His name was Amir. And the crew there were three students and alumni and several Israeli workers that volunteered or were paid on the dig. The cave area was called Area M, and it had all the students and alumni workers in there. And Chris Eames was the area supervisor with Brent Noctegal as his assistant. A typical morning would start one of two ways. We would either start digging immediately or we would have to move the buckets out of the way that we'd filled up the previous day in either one or both of the areas. We would do what was called a shasherit, which in Hebrew means a chain, where all the workers would just line up and pass the buckets from wherever they were stacked up to the bala bags. Sometimes a shasherit would last only half an hour and sometimes it would last an entire hour. And there was one morning where it even lasted the entire morning, which was two hours because both areas had filled up every bucket possible, which would add up to easily 700 to even 800 buckets total. Each area would need a shasherit at least once a day, sometimes twice. Once the shasherit was done, both areas would collect up the buckets and restack them, and then we would get back to digging. So upstairs, they were trying to remove a modern structure that was on top of a Byzantine house, and in the cave, we were just trying to get through all the dirt and all the layers and get to the bottom. Breaks were called hapsikas in Hebrew, and the first one was 15-minute hapsika at 8.30 in the morning, and we would all get coffee and biscuits and sit either inside the break room or outside in the sun. Every Sunday, the dig site maintenance man, Yaakov, would bring cake that his wife, Sephora, had made us to start the week off, 
which was really sweet of her, and it was really nice to meet her at the end of the dig when we had a dig party. After break, we would get back to work. Regular dig work involved pretty much just removing the dirt layer by layer and going down. The layers were measured either by 10 to 15 centimeters at a time, just removing the dirt. Or if we found a different layer of dirt, which was usually different color or consistency, and it would go either from dirt or sand to gravel or rock piles, usually pretty distinct. Anytime the dirt changed at all, it meant that it was a different layer and possibly a different time period going back just a little further. So once a new layer was found, we would get the top layer off of it. And this was done either by using pickaxes and, and big hoes called turias to hoe the dirt into buckets, or if it was more detailed, we'd get on our hands and knees and use the smaller trowels and dustpans to pick up the dirt and bucket it. Pottery was put into blue buckets, and every 10 to 15 centimeters, we would metal detect for the coins. Sometimes we would find coins with our bare eyes, which was actually a huge miracle every time it happened. Anytime there was a rock that was of a significant size, especially if there was more than one rock in a pile, we would use the brushes and trowels to dig around them and make sure they weren't part of a wall. If they weren't, which was usually the case, we would remove the rocks either by carrying them out or breaking them with sledgehammers if they were too big. Buckets would be filled up, stacked, and then removed on a very regular basis. The main lunch break was from 11 to 11.30 every day, and we all brought our own food, which us girls would prepare the night before on a rotation. Lunch was really cool, actually, because we got to talk to the other Israeli workers there and just to get to learn more about them, and they would always ask us questions. And then the last three hours of work brought us to 2.30 in the afternoon. After that, some would run home just to get extra time in before class started, but the rest of us would walk home, and we usually get back by 3.15 in the afternoon, and then we'd try to get through the showers as quickly as possible. Class started at 4, and the usual schedule, it was different every day, but the usual schedule was we'd have one class, and then have dinner, and then have our second class after that. And Depika would make dinner while we were in our first class, which she did an amazing job every time, and we didn't have one bad meal the entire time. And then after dinner, we'd help clean up, and second class would start at 6.15. After the second class ended, the girls who were on lunch for the next day would make it, and it was during that time that we usually get any other personal things done, like finish studying or do homework or things like that. And just the goal was to try to get to bed as early as possible every night. Because the two main things everyone looked forward to every day was sleep and food. <laughs> when we first got there, it felt like we were eating everything in sight. We were so hungry. And any time it was possible to go to bed before 8.30 or even 8, we took it. Bedtime was usually every night between about 8 and 9 for everyone, depending on what we had to get done. Overall, it was a great experience. It was very busy and intense at times, but once we got into routine, it was really nice, and God performed so many miracles to help us get through it. We had purpose every day to get up and hit the ground running to do God's work and have the urgency of knowing that we only had two and a half months to dig. It was an amazing experience. Thank you very much for that, Ariane. So, uh, digging... Breaking rocks with sledgehammers. This is physical work. This is pretty tough. How big of an adjustment was it to uh, working like this day in and day out? And how exhausted were you at the end of each day? Well, I think it's funny with Ariane brings out that we ate everything in sight. And that's because we just, we worked till our body pretty much was exhausted. And some of the girls would try and work a little harder trying to break all the rocks. But the guys had to keep them in check. But it really, <laughs> you, you had to... We, we knew we had two and a half months, so it's kind of like the difference between running a full marathon or a half marathon. We knew we could go all out, and we yeah. really did feel the prayers of everyone. There's there's days where you you knew you didn't have strength, but for some reason you had it, and you were able to go all eight hours, run back, do class until 8 o'clock at night, and not, not be tired. So it really, 
really did. Uh, we felt everyone's prayers. That, that's amazing. The idea that uh, you're you're kind of racing against the clock throughout the day to try to make it to bed as early as you can. I could totally see that being uh, the 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 mark of a true truly successful day is if you're in bed by eight o'clock. Yeah, Nick. I think probably one of the most inspiring things about the dig for me was just watching the students there because I remember senior year, Mr. Stephen Flurry, the president of the college, he told me that he only can send people to Jerusalem that he can trust academically and spiritually. And I think being an alumni there and just watching the students from the outside, I was just so impressed with how they handled the schedule, how they were able to juggle homework with the strenuous work on the dig site, hmm. as well as make sure they're getting their the spiritual details in that they need to. And it was just a really impressive thing for me to watch because it is just so important to make sure that your schedule is set. And I think each one of the students that went really did just pull through on that point for sure. Yeah. Well, I we actually had on our recording last Friday talking with Brent, uh, he said that the students worked their tails off. This Actually, this was on Monday at our, our meeting. Uh, he was just really impressed with how hard you all worked. Let's just talk a little bit about sleep. You're saying you're trying to get to bed at 8, 8.30, but you're getting up at 3 in the morning. Like, How much sleep did you actually get? And are you napping on these, uh, what were they called, the hapsicas? I think on average, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I think it was probably between like five to seven hours mm. of sleep a night and nobody napped during the hapsicas or the breaks. But yeah. I mean, like Justice said, you didn't, you could definitely see God's help in that way because you didn't really feel it as much as you would expect. There's a big difference between five hours and seven hours. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back on it now, yeah, I think just knowing that the brethren were praying so much for us. And knowing that it was just a focus for so many people, I could definitely see how God helped us, gave us the strength. Because we were going to bed, yeah, probably 8.30-ish, maybe a little bit later for some people and earlier for other people. But getting up at 3.45 or so, and, and I guess that's quite a bit of sleep, but just with the taxing amount of work we were doing every day, I know personally I felt like my body should have given out, mm. like maybe a month or two into the dig, but I was still, by the end of it, I felt stronger than ever hmm. and just really happy and ready to go. And I think that the prayers of the brethren, God really heard those and and, and helped us through the entire process. That's fantastic. So how was the experience different from your expectations? I'm sure you're excited. You hear you're going to be going over there and maybe, I know for some, it was like always a, a hope or a dream that you'd be able to uh, to make it actually being there. What was the same? What was different? I was really surprised at how, I guess you could say, slow everything goes. You'd think you could just hop in there with a shovel and go to town, but because everything has to be done very slow, uh, in, in well, as quick as we can do it, but still, it's a slower process. We want to make sure that we're very thorough in the process, that we don't miss anything. Mm -hmm. So it does take a lot longer, and it's uh, it was kind of neat to see just you know week after week how how far we were making progress. But every day, like you might go back and you'd be like, "Wow!" At the end of the day, we didn't very we didn't, we didn't get much done really. But at the same time, at, after a whole week of it, you could really start to see the progress. And as we got lower and lower in the cave, you could see the previous lines that we were looking at. You know, the, the week before were up a little higher, maybe a foot mm -hmm. or two higher. And it was just really cool to see that steady progress. But I was definitely surprised that 
at just how slow and how much time it takes to actually be thorough and really you know be detail-minded yeah like what with warren was saying <clears throat> just going slow at the very first part of the dig down in the cave it was really hard to be kind of motivated at first because you, you come back to work the next year you're like whoa i really thought we went further down than that <laughs> and then um, dr mzara come down and she'd be like take your time take your time and, and in the back of your mind you're like no we really need to go down further and as time progressed we did get past all the modern layers and as soon as we hit some of these layers where we knew this is this is fresh stuff we started coming we started going quicker actually and dr mzara would come down we'd have our our masterinas down just kind of basically toothbrushing the ground she's like what is this what are you doing get to turia and go to town and there Wait, was some- what, what explain what these are masteria and turia okay so a, a masterina is basically a really tiny hand shovel where you it's it's kind of flat some of them are sharp some of them are round where you can dig the dirt in uh, small portions but then there's a turia which is basically a hoe that's, that's what the, the i Jews, see yeah and so, so she's telling you get get out the big tools. Here. Yeah, she would come down and she's like, "What, what is this?" She's like, "Brent, I told you last time they need the they need the tourias." And it was <laughs> kind of funny seeing seeing how she would look at the layers differently. There's sometimes she's like, "You really need those small tools at some points," but then once you understand and once you've evaluated the ground and know what it's saying, uh-huh. then you can just wipe out what you know you don't need. It's like Warren was saying, just going slow at sometimes, but then really just plowing through what we don't need to get to the important stuff. Yeah, that's very interesting. Any other lessons that you took from uh, from from the experience as far as something that was different than your expectation? I didn't expect to get so close to the people that I was working with. Hmm. I guess that's probably... We were all together for three months, so it's probably to be expected, but I didn't really think that we would become so close as friends and family. So that was really nice because we all knew that we had each other's backs and we were in it together, um, and that was just really an uplifting experience that is wonderful you are listening to trumpet hour on trumpet radio we're talking with several members of the crew of staff and students who spent the last three months in jerusalem at an archaeological dig in the shadow of the temple mount under the direction of dr elat mazar coming up we're going to talk more about what it's like to live in probably the most unique and unusual city in the world jerusalem miracles they experience at the dig site and a whole lot more. Stick around. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. What is it like for a college student to get shipped halfway around the world and spend three months living in one of the world's most colorful, diverse, chaotic, and historically rich cities? We'll get a ground-level view from one of our DIG volunteers, originally transplanted from Australia to America, and then over to Jerusalem, and now back again, a junior at Herbert W. Armstrong College, George Haddad. Israel is a nation full of diversity and tension. Living in Jerusalem as a tourist was very different to the lives of natives, but the experience was still life-changing. Israel, although a small country, was jam-packed with history, people, and problems. When I arrived in Israel, it was nighttime, so while we were driving to the apartment, there wasn't much to see other than the roads, but I noticed right away that it was very hilly. And driving to the apartment felt a bit like a roller coaster, over and down hilly roads. But then even the streetlights were a range of colours from yellow, blue and green. And the roads were very small but busy. Walking around, a lot of the Jews assumed I was Jewish, but generally speaking, we all looked like tourists and were treated as such. 
Unlike America, people are not afraid to stare in excessive amounts and they will comment about you regardless of whether you hear them or not. Navigating through the bustling markets in the old city was a fun and thrilling experience. People would try and lure you into their store and haggling was a necessity. It was so unusual to see someone go from 700 shekels to 100 shekels. It was certainly an adjustment to tell myself that there is no fixed price and I must ask and then negotiate in order to not be scammed. I thought most people in Israel were religious, but upon arriving and conversing with a fellow Jewish digger, he explained that most people in Israel are actually not. Although he told me this, it seemed like the majority I saw were religious, but this is probably because we worked right near the Temple Mount. Living in Israel definitely made the Bible come alive. Visiting the city of David and walking through the massive and impressive tunnel of Hezekiah, which was carved through bedrock, visiting Tel Dan where Jeroboam um, built up an altar and a golden calf in order to encourage people not to return to Jerusalem. There was also a structure in Dan that was from Abraham's time period. As well as all the archaeological evidence that points to the Bible, it was so special to be surrounded by this all the time. One of the most special aspects of living in Jerusalem was definitely the Sabbath. The work week was Sunday to Thursday, so we had Friday to prepare for the Sabbath. It was very unique to go for a Sabbath walk and see practically all the stores closed and the roads virtually empty. We would sit on the balcony of the apartment and the city was so quiet. Usually the sound that fills the air was honking of cars and cats meowing, but not on Saturday. It was very special and really emphasized the beauty and purpose of the day. It was definitely amazing being in a city with unique tensions. Every day the Arab minarets would blast through the city and it seemed like for those few minutes the Arabs had control over Jerusalem. Talking with Jews about geopolitics was very uh, interesting as well in what was happening in the world because they are constantly under threat. One Jew explained that he can't afford to not keep up with the news because anything could happen in Jerusalem. All in all, living in Jerusalem really highlighted why this city is such an international focal point. There is always so much going on and especially during the Holy Days. IDF soldiers would be walking around as normal citizens except they had guns dangling from their belts. This made me feel more protected, but at the same time, it made me think about why they were needed so badly. Israel is not a third world nation, but it was not on the same level and development as America. The constant reminder that this is the city that God has chosen was needed, because right now, despite the rich biblical history, Jerusalem was a lot like other nations with a lot of problems. Thanks very much for that, George. That was outstanding. So uh, one question that I had was uh, you were there at the dig site and you're working alongside a lot of Israelis. You mentioned uh, some of the discussions that you were having with um, with the locals. Tell me about uh, uh, what kind of conversations you guys would have. Yeah, the, the Jews were very inquisitive and they were very curious about why we who call ourselves Christians were so interested in Israel as well as the Sabbath and their holy days. They consider it their days. So immediately questions about religion came up and questions about why why we're different from Catholics or why we're different from this religion or why we're different from this one and what do we think about the Arabs? Like all those questions came up, but then they even went into doctrines. Like I said, what do you believe? What do you believe about this? And why do you do that? And it was just... It was kind of like being in an interrogation room sometimes. They're just <laughs> that inquisitive, and they're very bold and blunt. They will just ask you straight out, 
what you think about certain things, especially even with world news. I had Jews ask me, what do you think about India's position in the world? And what do you think about Germany? And what do you think about Russia? And it was just really interesting. And it was hmm. on the spot type stuff. And you had to be ready to give an answer. That, it really made that scripture come alive, being ready to give an answer. Because they're bold, they're blunt, and they will ask you anything. Well, what about uh, just the city itself? There's religious representation on a lot of different religions, a lot of different brands of Catholicism and orthodoxy and, uh, you know, the the Muslims being there you mentioned. Uh, what were your thoughts? Of, I imagine you were able to do quite a bit of touring around. You mentioned the, the market or the shook where you're haggling with the, the vendors there. Any thoughts about just the variety of different kinds of folks that you encounter within the city even just walking to the dig site every morning it was interesting you could pass a jewish person and then a muslim woman and then probably i don't know a catholic monk all in the same street and Mm -hmm. you just walk by them and they're all just going about their daily business like it's normal but just looking at it and it's just you can just see the religious tension there even though it might it seemed peaceful while we were there just walking by and especially when you go through the arab quarters and there was this one instance where a there were some jewish people in the arab quarter and there were also police with them and you could just see that everyone else around them was just watching the situation it just seemed really tense and we just kind of started walking a little bit faster but like we were safe like um george said there were idf soldiers everywhere um that's not a big deal but it's just you could see the tension and just see all the religious diversity in the city. It is a little strange going into a restaurant and walking past the armed guard standing out in front of the restaurant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. just uh, You get the range from the, the Jews to a, a Rastafarian Jamaican Jew. You get a, a Catholic. You have a Muslim and Arab. You really have the whole, the whole range. And so it's just interesting seeing... Yes, there is, there is tension, but at the same time, you can walk around and have those people right next to you if they 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 let you worship they have the the arabs and the jews go i mean they they go to the wailing wall and there's there's different there's different interests for for each one of them but they go and do their thing and and as long as you do your own thing and you're not you're not messing with them they're totally fine with it mm-hmm. and as, as, there is a tension but at the same time there is kind of a a peace just knowing that you're doing your, they're doing their own religion and as long as you don't get in their way they're fine with you i uh i remember someone saying that when you travel you have to remember that uh, a foreign country is not designed to make you comfortable. It's designed to make its own people comfortable. So you're, you're encountering a lot of things that you would be unfamiliar with. Uh, what were some of the more interesting uh, things that you encountered besides the Jamaican Rastafarian Jew? So I uh, cooked and I would go to the grocery store and it was obviously everything was in Hebrew and so it was you know it was like a complete culture shock in that sense but uh, just trying to read labels and convert things from kilos to pounds it was just a completely unique experience and yeah they weren't trying to help uh, non-Jewish speakers in their you know labeling of things and whatnot right so yeah you're definitely reminded that you're in a foreign country well how many Indians are there walking around uh I guess one in every five, perhaps. Is that right? <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, that's just statistically how many units I should encounter. <laughs> <laughs> if, it, like, globally, you're, you're saying. Right. Yeah. So uh, how much Hebrew did you guys learn while you were over there? How much were you actually able to use that? A few of us took a Hebrew class before going over with the college, and then that class continued 
while we were there for everyone to take. Um, I think we learned enough to be able to get by on it, like, tourist standpoint and be able to read things but not maybe understand what it's saying but at least sound it out yeah so they definitely gave us enough information to where we could get by a little bit and then even on the dig site like talking to those those that are actually jewish we learned some from them so we learned a little bit none of us are fluent by any means or even close but i think the best way to compare it is, is if you were a tourist going there yeah well what what would you say uh are some of the biggest lessons that you took from the experience either from working on the dig site or say the experiences that you had with some of the people over there any anything that you felt like this is this was a kind of a life-changing lesson that i took i think there's two main things one of them would be time management and the second one would be don't waste minute and they they kind of go hand in hand but one is more about like okay i can get these things done in this amount of time and i don't i shouldn't waste it and then not wasting a minute really comes down to more of the opportunities that you have don't waste an opportunity that you have don't if if you have the opportunity to do something go out and do it for example you're we're in jerusalem we're in this city and i could have avoided some of the sites but then i would have missed out on those sites so you know, managing my time effectively and getting all my schoolwork in, getting the dig stuff done, that's important. But then embracing the opportunities that we have and not wasting a minute in life in general, like making sure you're living it to the fullest and taking those opportunities was definitely a big lesson because you just see people there every day, they're going to a wailing wall and praying where I'm, I'm in this city and it's like, okay, I want to visit the wailing wall. I want to visit this site. I want to visit this site. You know, I don't want to just spend one moment in one place, I want to. I want to travel. I want to see things. I want to live my life and and experience things. I think one thing that I just um, was emphasized to me was just being thankful for the purpose that we have in life, because we were there with a purpose to dig. And while we were digging, sure, sometimes it was difficult, and you felt like you were just digging through dirt. But we had a purpose for being there. And sometimes there were several volunteer workers or other um, Israelis that were coming to get paid. And some of them only came for like a day or two and then they left because they didn't like the work. But just realizing that everything that we do for God's work has a purpose and just being grateful for that and not just wandering through life. I think for me, a big lesson I learned was just the joy that comes from putting the work first in your life. And basically in the situation that we were in, we were pretty much forced to do that because we were working eight hours a day and then and then came school and, and and social things and going out and or whatever we were doing in the afternoons uh, and just having the focus of I'm here to do the work and even though it's just digging in the dirt it's there this is still what God has chosen for us to do and I think that was awesome and it really just helped me sharpen my focus on God's work and and also just making sure that my spiritual life was right so that I didn't hinder the work was another big thing. And just having that focus and just how happy it, it made me personally, I think is something that I learned from there and something that I want to take back to my job here and apply that to what I do here as well. Yeah, kind of going uh, hand in hand with that. I feel like because we had to do school, obviously, that was always really hard. But it shows that when you, as you, as Brenna said, put your heart in the work, that and if you don't just you know, if you do it with all your might and you know that it's God's will if you're you know following all those steps 
that God will make up the difference. And uh, it was hard to try and get all the schooling done, but somehow even with the grades, you know, I don't know if some people's grades dropped, mine dropped a little bit, but I was, you know, expecting a huge drop in grades. And I was really surprised when I saw my midterm because I was like, wow, these are much better than I anticipated. So (laughs) it was, uh, it was definitely just a, a great lesson to know that when you, you know, do put your heart in God's work, that he will make up that difference. And you, you're, you're planning to run the marathon as well. Oh, yeah. So that's in, uh, I think, two and a half weeks. So <laughs> that'll be a, a good two and a half weeks of uh, hard training. <laughs> yeah, Depika. Well, apart from all of those lessons, I totally agree with everyone. That's kind of how I felt. And I also felt that uh, I learned about how much more you can accomplish when you work as a team, when you're unified. And obviously the whole church was behind this effort and we saw the miracles that we did. Um, And at the same time, even with just the physical things like moving buckets from one end to another, when you tried moving it yourself, it took you so much longer and then when you formed a chain you did it together with song and enthusiasm (laughs) it was amazing how much how much was accomplished just by working like as a team just being unified I think one of the big lessons that I noticed actually came from the Jews that we worked with because we went there and they weren't very familiar with us at the start and the Jewish culture can come across as a little bit aggressive. And even as George said, like there's people that'll just stare at you and you're not sure why, but the beautiful thing about the Jewish culture is also once you get to know them and they're comfortable with you, they treat you just like your family. So we would come together for a break and all of them would have their food and they wouldn't come with that much food of themselves, but they would still just offer it to everyone. So they'd give them, give of themselves in that way. And then they'd also give of their time, whether it was the supervisors or other people on the dig to explain things to you and to make sure you understood what you were doing. So I think on the dig site, even with the Jews that we worked with, there was this real like familial unity that is just indicative of the Jewish culture. Like that's just the way they are. Once they know you and they're comfortable with you, they really do take you in as their family. And I thought that was just a really beautiful thing to be a part of and witness on the dig site. Yeah, just dovetailing off what Nick said, we had a end, end of the dig uh, meal, and we showed up there, and there's people from from the lab that we've never met. There's their family, their children, there's other people that, that are there that we, we haven't seen before that weren't on the dig, but we showed up, and everyone was just open arms, hugging people we've never met before, seeing the, seeing their family. The kids were going up to anyone and everyone being held and just having a good time. Brent and his, his family had, a, had another family that were children the exact same age, and they just hit it off. It really just did go to show living God's way of life, having that even affect the other other people in the dig, it just produced a happiness that you can't really see anywhere else. And there was a couple of comments that, that Yaakov, he, he was the construction manager on on the dig site, and he's like, you guys are just so happy. Hmm. There's no, I've never met young people like you. And he, he said this on the last night of the dig, uh, right before we left. He said, I've never met people like you before that do work so hard and love it and just have good attitude. And it just really showed when we got together as, as, a, as a dig family. And uh, it was just really awesome seeing God's way of life produces happiness that you cannot find anywhere else. What is something that you will do differently in your life because of the experience that you had? Coming back from Jerusalem, uh, I think I've had a much um, larger appreciation just for watching the news. Uh, being there, it was just so much more real because, you know, we're, you know, just mere You're in the miles. middle of everything. Yeah, exactly. In, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it was really interesting because especially right before we left is when the uh, March of Return began in mm. uh, Gaza. So it was just interesting because we're so close to it. And you don't want to, you know, wake up in the morning and just skip your your news watching and, you know, 
maybe the world doesn't exist around you, you wouldn't know. And so it just kind of made it uh, that much more real to me. And I think so far I've really stuck to it, just looking at the news every morning. Well, kind of similar to what Warren just said, but more um, more reading into history. Just even just the Bible has so many historical details, uh, and then Josephus and some other sources. There's just so much we can learn, especially when it comes to the New Testament. There's just so many secular sources that prove everything, uh, and, and I feel like just looking into the history and studying more in in that field is probably what I'll want to continue doing. Yeah, I touched on this before, but time management. I now realize that I can get a lot more done in my day than I was before. I just need to not waste time. I need to make sure that every minute I'm evaluating and I, I just make make every minute count and as well as just giving of my time as well. Like in Jerusalem it was a small, small group of us and then coming back to Edmund where there's three hundred members, it's it's really a good opportunity to share the experience, to give the give the experience and give of my time, you knowing knowing that there was an eight hour workday plus classes and then and then we had to get our sleep and prayer and study in as well. In Jerusalem, coming back here and not having some of the some of the time restraints, I can then give that time to other people. I can, you know, find ways to serve, do stuff like that. And I really hope that I can do that. I really want that to become a part of my mindset. And I think Jerusalem really helped in in doing that. But also another thing is the Sabbath keeping as well. Like Sabbath keeping in Jerusalem, just having that Friday preparation day and then going into the into the Sabbath and having everything just quieter and all the stores shut down. It just really rem- reminded me of the importance of the Sabbath and my mindset about, especially being in the holy city and, you know, just making sure that the Sabbath really is something that I prioritize throughout the week to get it, to get it right. Just knowing that we are part of God's work and God needs his, his people to have godly work ethic. And that really stood out. You're doing God's work. You need to be excited about it. You have passion. You you need to work hard. You need to to do the work of 10 men, even, even though you're only one man and just bringing that back here to, to headquarters and just knowing that my work affects more than, more than I know. And just bringing that back of, if I'm, am I going to work that hard in a day in a dig site? And am I going to work that hard here at, at headquarters and taking that to the field or wherever I go, just knowing that God's work needs godly work ethic and just taking that wherever I go. Well, that is marvelous. I'd like to finish by uh, talking about miracles. Uh, there were a lot of ways that it was clear to you that God was blessing this archaeological endeavor and it was actually it's come through in a lot of the comments that you made uh i want to open the discussion with this report from brianna weeks the 2018 ofel excavation began with miracles the entire reason we were able to participate in the dig is because of god's hand in working everything out perfectly Dr. Mazar got the license to dig on the OFL just an hour before she met with Mr. Fleury. The day that Mr. Fleury decided the PCG would fund the dig, we received money from an estate sale that was the exact amount we needed for the dig. It was miracles like these that made the dig possible. And the miracles didn't stop there. Over the course of the dig, several miracles happened to me personally that helped make God more real to me. These miracles helped me see his fingerprints in the dig and in my life more clearly. One miracle happened a few weeks into the dig. We had just arrived that morning, and I was getting set up in the section of the cave that I had been working in for a while by that point. I had gotten all of the tools I needed to get to work, and I had set up one of the LED lights that we used so that we could see in the cave. The light was probably a foot in length and width, and it stood upon a tripod stand that could be raised or lowered. At this point, it was raised up so that the whole thing was about five feet tall. 
I was bending over next to the light when suddenly I heard someone call out, Watch out! I heard the warning, but I didn't have any time to react whatsoever. Then I heard a crash right next to me, and when I looked over, I saw the light had fallen mere inches away from where I knelt. If the light had fallen on me, I don't think I would have died, but it would have been pretty painful, to say the least. Another miracle is similar to this one, but a little scarier. I was working under the stairs that led from the mouth of the cave down to the ground within the cave, and I had been setting some medium-sized rocks on the stairs to get them out of the way and closer to the mouth of the cave, where we would have to take them anyway. Someone started walking down the stairs from outside the cave and accidentally dislodged one of the rocks. It fell straight through the cracks between steps and so close to my head that I could feel the breeze as it passed by. The crack of it landing on the rock next to me was terrifying. The rock was big enough that if it had landed on my head, it probably would have given me a cracked skull at the very least. One of the miracles that stands out the most to me was later on in the dig. I was helping Alexandra, who was the lady who registered all of the finds on the dig, in preparation for them to be taken off to Hebrew University to be studied. We were in the midst of writing registration numbers on each of the pieces of pottery that we were going to keep. I noticed that one of the cards said that there should be a little clay animal leg, which would have originally been attached to a toy or some sort of figurine. But the leg was not there. I looked around, but I couldn't find it anywhere. I told Alexandra about it, and she looked around as well, but she could not find it. She walked over to the area where we had washed the pottery the day before. Each individual piece of pottery had to be scrubbed before it was set out to dry, but it was fairly easy to overlook a piece of pottery within the bucket of water, especially if the piece was small like this one had been. What most likely had happened was that we had scrubbed all the pieces of pottery in the bucket, except for that one little clay leg, and then we had dumped the water out without noticing that the leg got dumped out with it. This is what Alexandra assumed had happened, but when she got down on her hands and knees to look around the area, she could not find the leg. She was very upset. She got very quiet and went back to work, but I could tell that it was really weighing on her mind that we had lost this piece. So I said a quick prayer in my head, asking God to help her find it. It wasn't long before Alexandra got up to go look for the leg again. She looked in the exact same spot that she had looked before, only this time I heard a gasp. She'd found it. She brought it over to me with a look of total disbelief on her face. She could not believe it. She told me over and over and over how she just couldn't believe she'd found it. Then she said that she knew it was a miracle. I threw a little party in my head. It was absolutely amazing to see God answer my prayer like that and to see that even she realized that this was a special thing. She came back to me for days after that, telling me over and over about how she had found the leg and how she still just couldn't believe it. These are just three of the many miracles that God performed in my life over the course of the dig, and I am sure that these only scratch the surface of the many miracles that everyone else on the dig experienced as well. These miracles are an incredible demonstration of God's power, how much He cares for His people, and how intimately involved He is in His work. Thank you for that, Brianna. I, I, I was talking to my kids this morning about us doing this show and my son said Brianna will be really good at the miracle story because she's really excited about stuff <laughs> so did did any anyone else have any experiences that you wanted to share go ahead throughout the dig we were all I think praying that God would guide and direct our supervisors and Dr. Mazar and we ended up finding um, we ended up cutting three sections in the cave one, uh, one was along the wall uh, that was there. Uh, we didn't want to cut too close to the, to the wall, otherwise it could um, compromise its structure so it could fall. So we had to have the, the perfect distance because you don't want to miss anything either. So you're trying to find what that happy medium is. 
and then we um, also had a section under, underneath the staircase that went down and then on the other side of it. So it kind of made like a horseshoe around our um, the area we were digging. And then we ended up finding some artifacts that were very close to the section. Um, one in, in one case, it was actually inside the section, and we had to cut the section back another few inches. But throughout the whole process, we're wondering if what if we would have you know not cut back an extra foot on one of the sections? We would have completely missed finding one of these artifacts. Um, obviously, we don't know what they are now, but after processing, we'll be able to tell if mm-hmm. they have any significance. Yeah. Yeah, George? I definitely think there was a lot of protection on the dig site, as Brianna was saying, with the rocks and everything. But even just, I noticed I would cut my hand on some rocks sometimes, and then the next day, they would, the, the scars would be there, but they'd be healed. But then after we, tra- like after we finished digging and we were traveling around, I still have cuts on my hand now from, from cutting it at that point. So you definitely look back and think, wow. Like, how- you're saying it's worse now than it was while you were no i got new cuts when we were traveling oh, and they haven't healed yet I but gotcha. the ones that i got on the dig side healed in a day so huh. just the idea that like even god probably sped up the healing process and gave us more energy as we've as we've already heard just miracles in terms of that and the protection that we had cuz like there was times where there were snakes in the wall that i was i was um excavating aye, aye, aye. this is real indiana jones stuff this, this is the sto- this is the story of our area essentially because I pulled this You're sna- in a cave. No, I was up in the Byzantine house. Oh, okay. area. So there's a snake in this wall and as soon as I saw it, I got a little bit scared because I'm like, "Oh, well what if it bites me? I don't know if Israeli snakes are dangerous. I'm used to Australian snakes which definitely kill you." <laughs> and my area supervisor said, "Well, we need to get it out." So I just reached in and grabbed it with my hand and pulled aye, it out. Aye, aye. But thankfully the tail was there. And I was pulling it by the tail, and I just remember thinking, yeah, I definitely need protection, but I need to get this wall out, and I can't stop the entire dig to just wait for this snake to come out when it's ready. So I ended up just pulling it out and disposing of it. And, yeah, it was really exciting. But even, like, there was also spiders and things in our area where we were, and we just, no one got bit, and cuts were healed faster, and we all had energy so it was just like huh. a miracle of protection. So did you find out it was this actually a dangerous snake? Were, were I you... personally don't think so, but you couldn't really tell after huh. I dealt with it what kind of snake it was. <laughs> well, working down in the cave, we uh, we had to continually lengthen the stairs that we had. So Yako and I would go down there and put some supports. But there was one day where we went down about four feet or so. And you can definitely tell it was a miracle because each each post would have to be supported by dirt underneath it. So we had to dig around and have these pillars of dirt. And we clearly see burn, sand, sludge, and then more burn. And that day, zoologists came down to get samples. And it was the perfect, perfect place to, to get these samples and send them off to the lab. And we metal detected and there, there was no coins. And that still was one of our main, our, our main purposes was finding those coins. And so Chris, the, the area supervisor, told me just just knock it out and, and get those uh, th- those samples in the bags. So I, as I was knocking it out, I was like, Chris, uh, I found a coin. And he's like, oh, okay. And then I kept going out and I was like, Chris, we got another one. And we found about two to three coins in, in that specific column. But just, just seeing the miracles of, they're pretty small. They can blend in with that, mm. that burn layer. But God really just brought them right to the top of, of, of the soil, and we were able to get them, no problem. And it was, it was just kind of cool seeing that stand out, because most of the time you'd find it with the metal detector, and it'd take about five minutes just digging the soil out, but these just popped out of the ground. And you just know there's no other way besides God being right in the middle of it. And at the same time, we got really good uh, samples of the soil. Well, that is marvelous. What a wonderful discussion. It's been delightful having you here 
I'm Joel Hilliker. That will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. Send us your comments on the program by emailing letters at thetrumpet.com. Thank you to my guests, so many of you, Nick Irwin, Depika Azariah, Ariane Olson, Justice Brown, George Haddad, Brianna Weeks, Warren Reinch, and also Rachel Grellett for her report from England. Thanks to our technical staff, Dwight Falk and Josh Sloan. I'll leave you with this thought from Miriam Beard. Travel is more than the seeing of sights. It is a change that goes on, deep and permanent, in the ideas of living. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.